The final episode of IDI's special focus on making debating inclusive, we speak with Shyamal Malachi. Shyamal put forward an important argument that reframes development. We should not consider developing a debate circuit to mean that those with all the knowledge come to a community to simply dump their knowledge upon the listeners. Rather, he suggests it is a mutual learning process, where the external trainer gets as much from the process as the people that they train. And Chamo's implication is that this horizontal development can radically alter how we develop circuits, suggesting that developing circuits can reach out to each other and learn and share together. We start this conversation with developing debate in Bloemfontein. But the contours of Chamo's approach to developing debate means we also learn from a debate network that stretches from Latin America to the Middle East. And therefore, it radically alters the resources, access, and way in which we make sure that debating can be reached to all. If you're interested in learning more, please check out the other episodes that we've done on the special focus of making debating more inclusive. If you have feedback on this podcast or want to hear your own voice, maybe heard with your own ideas, please reach out to us. You can do so by mailing us at podcast at idebate.nl. And now let's listen to Chiamo Malachi. Hello, Chiamo Balachi. Welcome to the conversation. You are a debater from Bloemfontein in South Africa. You have, I think, managed to make that organization grow to reach before. And you have even included that towards international debating, uh, being a uh, secretary of the World's Council. And I'm very happy uh, that you're on the show. Could you tell me a bit more about yourself and your background in debating? I'm particularly interested in what you've gotten out of it thus far. I started debating in primary school here in Bloemfontein, South Africa. Um, debate culture is really popular in schools here in South Africa. And then I started uh, debating in university because of that. What did I get out of debating? I think from a young age, you develop critical thinking and public speaking skills, which helps you in debating, obviously, but also anywhere else you want to work and live in society. Um, but most of what I do today is not the activity of debating. It's, as you mentioned, it's organizing competitions, development, training. And the most that I get out of that is seeing how much we can help the people that come after us. Okay, that's, I think, the exact topic of conversation that I'm deeply interested in, uh, having someone myself who's, who's been an active debater, but still works in the field, because I think we can all stick around a bit and learn more from it. So let's dive right into that. So I think the main topic of conversation that I'm interested in having is I want to learn how we can make sure that debate like, lives up to its most inclusive ideals. Uh, and actually make sure, therefore, that people are represented and gain a skill set that, that the highlight debate has. Um, and I think it then makes most sense to start locally, because I think that's where most people start debating. So can you tell me a little bit more about what is the exact work that you do in Bloemfontein with the local government, and how are you making sure that debating can reach everyone there? I agree. If I can say that inequality is a structure. So in your previous uh, episode, which I recommend everyone watches, you spoke a lot about language access, financial access to debate, even the way people think about 
race, gender identity, regions in the world, all of those things are structures. So you, you'd imagine that the moment someone goes to a competition, they go in with their identity, with any inequalities they have, but also whatever disadvantages they have. On the other side, people go in with whatever privileges they have. Uh, and that plays a role. I mean, in the previous episode, they were speaking about judges who couldn't understand an accent. So all of that is a structure. So from my perspective, the best way to address this is to address that structure itself. So when someone is still really young, um, they're in a school that's perhaps under-resourced, what we need to do is go into schools that are under-resourced and give training in critical thinking and public speaking. At this point, we aren't approaching debate as a competition, at least not yet. I mean, a lot of people that we work with probably don't even like the competitive aspect of debating as um, a sport. It's, it's mostly about the structure of critical thinking and public speaking that we develop from a young age, such that when someone's a lot older, they don't face those same kind of disadvantages. I think, though, the work also needs to be done in other communities. If you can't understand a particular accent, it means that you haven't uh, embraced you know, diverse media like television and music, etc. So it doesn't help that we do all the work on our side to get rid of the structural impediments here, because the structure is also the privilege that other people have. But okay, what do we do specifically? Um, we work with the local government here. The South Africa is split up into nine provinces, and each province has its own department of education. And those provinces have autonomy over educational programs. So one educational program is what I work in, and that um, it's actually mostly public speaking, but because of us, we've actually given it more of a debating lens. Uh, we start with training in critical thinking and public speaking because it can be really intimidating to try to debate without that prior exposure to critical thinking, even just content sessions, current affairs, just having conversations. Uh, many people aren't confident to even speak publicly, so sometimes it's just about doing icebreakers, playing fun games, just to get people to talk. And we're talking about young learners. I mean, uh, when I started, we were speaking people as young as 10, but now we're mostly focusing on people uh, in high school, so from age 14 upward. Uh, and that goes up until their last year in high school, so you know, between the ages of 14 and 18. Um, the program isn't well-funded, so none of us get paid most of the time. Sometimes you might get food or snacks for the day. So it's mostly run based on our, uh, us being volunteers. When we do have time, we are also all university students, so we can't do it uh, regularly. So the program isn't that amazing because it's not a constant, continuous engagement for many of the learners. But every time we do end up traveling, I mean, it's nice as well, because we get into this uh, van, basically, we drive an hour and a half, um, we, we, we arrive at a school, it might be a Saturday, so we might stay for half a day. But if we go during the week, we might only stay for about two to three hours. Um, sometimes the government organizes transport for various schools to come uh, into the, uh, the suburban area of Bloemfontein where there are much more privileged or elite schools. And that's usually when there are competitions because those tend to be hosted at the more privileged or elite schools. So the government also does arrange transport. Um, the schools also help too. Um, 
what I would like the program to become, however, is a more continuous engagement. How can we have weekly sessions with learners? More importantly, how can we train people who are in the communities consistently? Uh, maybe the language teachers, like if they're a, a teacher of English language in the area, maybe we could bring together English language teachers from uh, various schools and have lots of sessions with them about public speaking and critical thinking. Then when we aren't there, there will be people there who will be giving the training without us having to physically be there. So that's the best route. It's even sustainable. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's literal empowerment of community to empower other members of community. But even to roll out a program like that um, has had lots of hurdles. But we hope to, you know, when this whole situation with coronavirus settles, to launch, you know, training the trainers kind of a program. Um, the, the second thing I want is uh, quite obviously to bring a lot more people into it because I, I think right now a lot of it has been me and some of the people at my university. It would be great if we could get. I don't know, more lecturers at our institution, more members of various communities to come to give a lecture, to give a content session, um, just to speak to learners. Some of these learners have role models. It would be great if we could get some of those role models to come into the community as well. All of that just creates a much uh, better atmosphere, makes everyone more motivated to learn, to try harder, to want to excel. Because our overall objective is to break down these structures so that when they're my age, they don't have the same kind of barriers to debate that our generation did. Okay, thanks. I, I want to put a pin in the structure because I definitely want to return to it, but I have a couple of concrete questions with regards to this program. Um, so I think, first of all, it sounds wonderful that you're doing this and that you're doing this also quite often pro bono. Um, so what's, your, what's been your motivation for trying to engage in it? Is, is it the giving back and what you're pointing out that's your ideal goal? Um, and do you think that that could be a lesson also for people that you would like to get into the Bloemfontein training program, the role model that you speak of? Do you think that similar motivations could work for them? Uh, I think it's a short answer. I, I think my motivation is literally, I, I would like to create a much fairer world in general, even outside of debating. Um, what motivations would <laughs> rope other people in? Right now, we don't spend too much time, you know, trying to coerce people into supporting our program. Um, usually, I think when they see the outcome, like what we actually achieve, they think, oh, this is actually a good idea. This is a good project. Uh, we actually put out a video on YouTube about our project and a few people saw that and said, oh, you know, how can I also get involved in this? Um, we write reports for our university and the, the managers of our university, the people in management look at our reports and they say, oh, this is really good. You know, what more support do you need for a project like this. Um, so I, I guess that answers your question. I think showing people the, the outcome, like what we are actually doing and that it actually is making a difference, it probably activates something in them where they say, oh, this is a project that's doing something good, I can contribute. But we don't really go around trying to coerce or incentivize people to join. Okay, thanks. Please, please do share that video so we can place it under the published okay. video and everyone can see it. Um, so. The, the other thing that I'm then wondering is, as you're pointing out, you have like a dream and an ambition, uh, but that probably requires funding. Um, so I'm wondering, are there currently already like issues with funding you've been able to solve? Are there, are there ways in which the community could help? Or are there even other barriers that you feel we need to start addressing in order to realize yeah. that dream for the Blue Platinum community? 
that is a huge issue. We, this government program is severely underfunded. As I've mentioned, most of the funding goes toward transportation costs, um, which is at least helpful because that is the physical distance barrier between people who live in suburban areas like me and in people who live in severely under-resourced areas like most of the, the school learners we work with. So transport is obviously the biggest thing that we need to address funding-wise and the government usually pitches in there, but there's also a lot of bureaucracy. Sometimes uh, paperwork will go missing or um, they will be the sense of the vehicles that the government allows us to procure aren't available on this day. So we have to cancel uh, for this day, we have to go another day. So working with the government is obviously not a great uh, sustainable or uh, comfortable arrangement, but there are some finances there. The university, it's tricky because they're, it's also very bureaucratic. There are various funding sources. Uh, and uh, the kind of thing that we're doing is community engagement. So we, we have to go through community engagement funding source. Only at our institution, we can't go through the other traditional means. So our debate society gets funded, but uh, that's very different than funding for something like this. Also, when you are a society that goes into a community, the university has particular regulations that you have to abide by because you are representing the institution or you know various other jargon uh, bureaucratic terms that they use um so we we usually don't go through that process but we we've started to engage with the community engagement office on campus we also don't want uh, institutional control over the project because in the past that hasn't uh, resulted in a lot of autonomy for us um okay but we are working on building those partnerships. Uh, this year, we actually had an agreement with the Community Engagement Office, but obviously the current virus happened. So I, I imagine next year, they, they're going to give us a lot more funding. Uh, I personally don't think the biggest obstacle is that we don't have financing. I know a lot of us would probably like to get paid a stipend of some sort for the work that we do. Um, that, that's been a, a strong sentiment. So if there was a funding shortfall, it would be for us who are adjudicating, who are training, who are putting in labor. It would be cool for us to try find ways. I mean, we tried to do some fundraisers, but um, another problem was most of our fundraising efforts went toward sending some of these learners to the national competition. So I don't remember all the price differences between, you know, dollar, euro in South Africa, but what I can say is the national competition costs 4,000 Rand um i i don't i don't know i think it that's that's probably 200 to 250 dollars um it's a quite a hefty amount it's it's crazy i mean the average south african doesn't even make that much in a month and that's how much it costs to attend this competition so as much as we would like to fundraise to pay ourselves and to fund uh some of the nicer perks of of this uh, uh project i'm going to be blunt and say a lot of our fundraising efforts have gone towards sending learners to competitions. Um, if I look at the World Championships, that was, uh, you probably remember that, how much that was in dollars. Some, in, in South African rands, it was 8,000 rands. Exactly, so about about double of what a national championship cost for a 10-day event. Yeah, yeah. That, that was three months of my salary. Uh, the, the full amount of, so I, I worked I, I worked two part-time jobs and um, over th three months of both of those two jobs, every single cent I earned 
that that's how much it cost because I, I paid for my own trip to Worlds in Cape Town and that was without a plane flight because I bust to Cape Town because I'm in South Africa. So I think um, it's a difficult conversation to have because you don't want to say don't attend tournaments that are expensive. But at the same time, I look back at how much money we've spent going to tournaments and I think imagine if we had invested all that money that we're sending to tournaments toward debate development programs, especially in under-resourced schools. If I took that same 8,000 Rand that I paid for Worlds and put it into this program, I think the effects would be enormous. So I, I no longer attend tournaments. Uh, uh, well, uh, not, not with my own money. A lot of that goes into this project and other projects. But uh, it's a tricky conversation to have. Um, mm -hmm. I, I just want to say that, yeah. yeah. So I, I think overall, I don't think the problem is that there, there's no way for us to make money. I think that there is competitions which are draining a lot of that money. Mm -hmm. so, so yeah, Nick, because you wrote, I think, a very instructive piece talking about what you call the, the Joe Burke approach in South African yeah. debating, where you pointed out that if we wanted to create an as cost-effective method of getting high-quality competitions, the focus in South Africa should be to try and make sure that Johannesburg will be hosting most of the tournaments because at the very least it's the easiest access point for South Africa and Southern African debating compared to like hosting a large amount of competitions in Cape Town. But even there, one of the things that I'm getting out of this conversation is that there is a logic I hadn't even thought of yet, which is that if you want to go to where the good quality tournaments are, you end up paying, whereas the people who like either host the good quality tournaments or live in an area don't have paying up the consequences. It would be similar towards in, in Europe, if someone from like Eastern or Northern Europe wants to get to the, the strongest competitions in the European continent, they have to travel to the West Balkan or travel to the United Kingdom. Um, and that's a, a huge cost that isn't incurred per se, vice versa. Um, so I, I think that's a very interesting thought because that also tells us then, not just about that cost, but also about, it's another way to showcase the relevant privilege of those who happen to live nearby where strong circuits already are. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, I think an African team couldn't go to the HWS round robin. Um, I don't know the full facts, but if it was a financial barrier, yeah, it speaks to that, you know, exactly. Um, what I will say to that, however, is let's assume, you know, we can break down lower level structural barriers, just assuming. It would mean that the learners that we're working with who would grow up to be members of the local debating circuits will have stronger competitions. So if we work with someone, if we work with a group of people from a really young age, um, I think that when they're older, those competitions will be strong. So I think it, it's a, that's a problem that will solve itself. So if it's the case that, and it's true, if I go to Cape Town Open, it is a very competitive tournament. My experience has been that Cape Town Open's been the most difficult tournament I've been to. How can we, you know, create that same level of uh, strength, standard, etc. in any other region, I think will organically solve itself when we address the structure. Uh, you know, everything goes back to the structure, yeah. I, but I don't think that right now there's anything we can do. Like right now, I don't think that uh, a, a local tournament here will be more competitive than the world championships. You know, it, it, I, I don't think there's, uh, I mean, you could, you could uh, try mitigate, you could try to have rigorous training programs. And I like what Worlds did this year. Uh, well, I like the Worlds training program that they rolled out this year. Um, that, that was great. And that, that, and that can mitigate those differences in standard and experience and knowledge, et cetera. But overall, 
I think the best solution is work with people from a young age, raise them up. Uh, that automatically addresses that standard issue. Yeah. I think that's very good to point out. And I'm reminded here again of like the situation in Europe where just now we, we hosted the European University Debating Championships and it was held by Kazakhstan, which I mean, is more Central Asia than Europe if we look at it geographically speaking. So obviously they don't have a large amount of interaction with the European circuit. Yet at the same time, a team from Nazarbayev University broke as the fourth open team, whereas last year they really didn't have that opportunity that much. And I think one of them ended up on the 225th speaker place uh, on, on tap. Uh, and I don't think they even managed to reach the second language out rounds. So it does show to us that like organic development of a community can occur if it has those type of resources. Do you think therefore perhaps then that the international debating community should recognize where more of the needs of the resources are? Because I have a feeling that they have a quite high step-in level um, of what you already need to know before you can access these videos that they post out and that we really should start yeah. thinking about resources for, for 12 year olds or 14 year olds, basic yeah. training programs. Exactly. I don't think the training needs to be only targeted at people who are already competitive debaters. I think if you want to address the structure, it has to be targeted to young children. Yeah, that, that's accurate. It should, that, that's what we're working on right now. Um, trying to create videos for really young people so that as well, we don't have to physically be there to do the training. Um, what ways can international community and world help out? Oof, I think that's a bit tricky because to some degree, the, the people who need ownership over the material and what is being trained needs to be us. So I, I, I think it, it doesn't help that someone else creates training videos and then sends it to us. I, I don't think that's necessary. Um, I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of the, the, the groundwork has to be done by us. Um, I, I, I personally believe, honestly, that the work that people in other parts of the world need to do is to address structures in those parts of the world. If you are in uh, UK or Iona in general, uh, if you're in North America, if you're anywhere in Europe, and you don't watch debate videos from Africa, you need to do more of that. You know, there are Pan-African Championships videos. They're online. There are videos from South Africa, I know, which are online. If you aren't watching debate videos from this side of the world, then you aren't putting in enough work to understand how debating works and operates, what kind of issues are usually contested here, accents even, you know. Um, I, I think that that's the structure that needs to be corroded on that side. And I know they watch a lot of each other's videos, I just think that it would make sense for them to watch more of ours. But if they did want to help out with more of the groundwork, I think we could enter into some kind of coalition. And I wanted to speak about that actually, because I, I work, uh, I, I, I'm, we're currently, it's gonna take a long time, but I, I, I want to prepare some training materials and I'm going to be sending it to some debaters in Palestine. who are going to be working on translating those materials into Arabic but then also contributing meaningfully to the material based on their own context. So it's not, I make a document, they just translate. It's also, what kind of examples are we using? How are we explaining the concepts? So it's like meaningfully co-writing the document. Then I've also worked with some debaters in Brazil who are doing the same, who are also converting the document into Portuguese uh, and also adding local contextual examples. And then I've also spoken to a debater uh, in the Caribbean who's also going to be doing the same. So we've kind of got this coalition now. I've got debaters in Brazil. Um, I think in, in Jamaica is the specific country in the Caribbean. 
and Palestine. Um, I've worked as well before with debaters in Kenya, in Nigeria. There's a tournament that was organized by, um, the, by uh, uh, debaters across Africa, but then also some debaters in Spain and, and, uh, and in, oh gosh, I need to remember the name of this country. I really sorry, it's a South America, Ecuador. And mm -hmm. Ecuador, uh, it was called the uh, UDDC, Uhuru Digital Debate Championship. So you've got debaters in Ecuador, South Africa, uh, uh, Nigeria, Ghana, Spain, etc., helping to organize a tournament. And this tournament also had members from across the world. There were over 35 countries participating in this tournament. It happened this year in June online. Okay, but the point is, I think that that development needs to happen horizontally. It needs to happen through coalition, not top down. I, I don't need someone to transfer $50 into my bank account you know, uh, although there are many other people who would like that, and I think that do give financial support to groups that are asking for it and need it. I know there are fundraisers that we also sometimes have, but in terms of the, the greater grand vision, I think that needs to be done through coalition. So it would be great if someone actually just messaged me and asked, hi, how can we work together? And we had a long conversation about it. We can see where each of our strengths are. Um, I don't know, maybe someone is really great at fact-checking or proofreading documents. Maybe we could compile our document and send it to them and they could just help us, um, uh, you know, fact-check or proofread the document. Maybe we were making a case file and I wanted to include history around the world for this case file. It would be great to have a network of, I mean, they do that on Communist Case File, which is the Facebook group where you can ask questions and then the people in the comments section kind of respond, oh, this is where you can find this source. So I've used that group, Communist Case File. I've also looked at some of the questions that people have asked on Communist Case File and have used that as well in preparing uh, 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 information as well for our sessions. And that's a good example. Communist Case File is a horizontal group. It's, it's a group where you can ask for advice and, and give advice. Uh, and it already exists. So I, I would just say, you know, continue building on something like that. Okay, one thing I really like about this uh, uh, argument is that it suggests, therefore, that the, the current model of how we think that debate development, where the world's best speakers and judges come in, they fly in every now and then when there's a regional competition they can afford the flight funding, and then they teach, is in a sense outdated, um, yeah. because it means that we just have the assumption that they have all the, the, the wisdom there, um, and they can develop it and spin it down, and then it's out there, there's no more development. Exactly. And I, li I, like, I, I like what you say here for a couple of reasons. One, that you say it is a far more mutual arrangement of learning. So I, in that sense, it makes it feel like it's much more than like the incidental, we fly someone in and, and that learns. Two, I think it flips the model and the idea that there's this person who already knows everything because you point out correctly that there is more learning to be done. And I think that probably creates the type of diversity that you're talking about. And also I think it sounds, I've had very large amount of conversations in this, um, in the, in the, in this series where we talk a lot about the fact that uh, white people need to encounter their own biases and need to like critically examine them. And this seems to at the very least be a structural way in or, or shift in which that bias encountering actually meaningfully can take place. But then yeah. finally, one like little trick I think I really like about this is um, it feels like it could be self-interested. Like if I want to get better at debating topics about development, um, probably I want to speak to someone who has meaningfully encountered that into a country that has had 
ex direct experiences with development aid and all of that, rather than just keep talking about the narrative that we hear about newspapers in Europe. So I think that that is a wonderful idea to actually encounter a, a stimulus for a kind of development. And I'm also wondering, are there, you, you're pointing out that these structures are being set up, that you're in these contacts with Palestinian debaters, debaters from Kenya, from Ecuador. If someone listening to this is interested, where could they uh, hook themselves into the system? Well, see, I, I, I've never thought far enough to formalize it so that it can constantly keep growing. Because that, that, that would also have required the thinking of wanting to make oneself the authority over all of it. But uh, I, I personally think that you can uh, find a way to message me personally and then maybe we can work on formalizing. I mean, maybe the first thing we should do is instead of giving the answer on this call, we should, if you want to help out, we can find a way to formalize a, a coalition, um, a, a development coalition. I mean, that's what the World Council wanted to do at a stage and uh, uh, other things got involved there. Uh, maybe we could do that. I mean, there's a group in Ghana called Speech Forces, and then they, 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 they're working right now with uh, the VITS Debating Union uh, here in South Africa. I mean, they've even merged two African tournaments together. So it's, it's, it's almost like everyone's got an organization already, which exists and is already formal. So there might not be a need to create a new organization and title it. I mean, you've got idea that you're working uh, with, obviously, where this is being broadcast. We already have formal structures. I think it's more of different formal structures working in coalition with each other. It would be cool, like, let's say we created a video series. I, I don't know, maybe idea has a YouTube channel it goes up on your YouTube channel. Um, Southern African Debating has a YouTube channel. The same video goes up on ours. And then uh, speech forces can put the same video up and everyone contributes to the video and everyone also uses their own formal platform to put the video up. I think that that's more important than trying to create a new organization because there's already part of the World Council. And um, I, I also feel like trying to do that will be giving away all authority from our local movements to one, you know, hegemonic group that's going to be responsible for all debate development, which is not what we want. The horizontal, it's the, in other words, decentralization. We, we, we work in our own context, but then we collaborate with each other. So what, what I would actually recommend someone do then is, if you're going to come as an individual, not as a formal structure that you already have, it's cool. Maybe we can find a way for you to help us with whatever skills you have. But the best thing to do is to start a little project where you are, do something where you are. That way, when you come to us, you're coming to us with work that you've already done and we're working together instead of just coming to us as someone who's interested in doing something, you know. Um, so I like that, like speech forces in Ghana already exists. They're already doing their work. VITS debate union already exists. It's already doing its work. Then they work together. That amplifies both of their efforts. But if you haven't been doing anything, and we've been doing a lot of work, it's almost like you're joining us, not working with us. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense to some extent, but also because I feel that, as you're pointing out, the joining isn't necessarily a joining per se, because it's not like we're joining forces, but it's more like a, um, I haven't done in the legwork, but I'm still going to tell yeah. you what you need to do. Uh, because I don't have that understanding of the local context. I don't know what it is that you guys actually exactly. need. I use my pre-packaged training plans. I'm just going to go that, and run them. I feel. I feel like, okay, you want to help us, but okay, maybe tell us a bit more about what you're good at. Because I mean, there's probably thousands of things that we might need help with, but I'm not going to create a document with 
1,000 things and put it out there and say, who can help us? Yeah, like I, I, that was a silly example about the fact checking. But uh, I mean, it's like if you're really good at that and you really want to help us with that, rather make that offer than ask us, what can I help you with? Because I don't know how to answer a question like that. But also the most important work that you can do in your context is addressing the structure that is in your context, which is what I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. I am gonna to move to the elite level though for a little bit, because I, th I think this is incredibly good and helpful to understand it in local context and develop debate in that way. But you have also, of course, involved yourself within work on the World's Council on, on, the, on the hegemon, as you pointed out. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit about why you decided to do that work and why, why, for instance, things like a reform for making sure that at least some funding could get passed to institutions from impoverished nations uh, didn't get through thus far? Okay, so the first one, why did I get involved? I went to council and I was very vocal in council. I'm sure anyone who was in that council will remember. And I just realized that I'm one of the most vocal people in this council sitting. Um, I wasn't really aware how messed up council was. Uh, so really experiencing, I mean, you spoke about it in the last episode about uh, voting disparity based on the council uh, status uh, of each uh, member, things like that I thought were quite bad. And, you know, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a vocal member. I want to start to work at addressing these things. Maybe I should run for council. And so I did run. Um, remind me your second question. Yeah, so... When you were when you worked in council, you've tried to pass the reform, a reform. I remember. Okay, I sent you I sent you the the text of the reform that was drafted on um, budgetary obligation on the host. Yeah. So a lot of background here. Um, I went to World Council uh, in uh, 2019 Worlds, uh, which was uh, the Cape Town Worlds. Uh, I was the South African country delegate because I was the vice chairperson of our national council. So I was meant to represent South African council. Uh, a lot of that's in the report background on that. But I had the idea of trying to start a conversation about uh, uh, potential subsidies for teams. At the same time, which was also discussed in your previous um, video, there was another proposal by another prominent debater here, which um, you know, went out and there was a lot of discussion about it and it made arguments for its case. Um, so there were, there, were, there were two very different ideas, which, which were kind of in motion, but that one got way more steam than what was my idea. The problem with that proposal was when it was taken to council, it wasn't clear on what needed to be voted on, what specific amendment needed to be made. It, it, it wasn't uh, phrased in a tangible way it was more of um, a principle or a, a moral good for us to want to support, but then the work of council requires it to be phrased in a way that can be implementable. Yeah, so very, the, the, very legalistic, right? So like we need to have exactly. a very clear set of prescribed powers. Yeah. Yeah, but, I, but I'm okay with that burden. And so we took that upon ourselves and I don't remember everyone's name. It would be great if I could give them credit, but I think he was the regional rep for Oceania. I don't know, I think his name was Ben. Um, he, he, myself, and uh, Julio, who, who became the registrar for the World Council, and I think maybe another person worked for a while on how to phrase the amendment. So we, we, that, that phrasing was what we came up with, which would, which would put on each host as part of their budget uh, a, a monetary obligation 
to fund, I believe, a few teams based yeah, I think on three, three, yeah, three teams yeah. based on a specific set of criteria, um, taking into account a few things. Um, that didn't necessarily mean that they only had to fund African teams, they, but they, they did have to think about the history of each uh, circuit, and it would obviously include Africa. Um, there, there were also other underdeveloped regions in the world, such as South uh, or Latin America, a better phrase. Uh, I mean, we spoke about Palestine, for instance. Uh, they had attended their first worlds in, in, in Cape Town. That was their first world, so that was amazing. Um, okay, but to cut a long story short, that was the background for that particular amendment. Um, it wasn't passed in council because council members argued that they had to go back to their constituents and speak about the amendment first before they could vote on it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a really great uh, argument to make, maybe, but I felt like there was, there's already been a long conversation about this in general, even if not about the specific amendment that should have empowered them to be able to vote on it then. I thought it was just a convenient cop-out to not vote on it. I agree that the way that the amendment was specifically phrased was new. We, we, we had, at that council sitting, framed, phrased it that way. I mean, we, we didn't, uh, a year before or weeks before, come up with the phrasing and then bring the phrasing to the council. But I also felt that um, that prominent debater's letter and the issues that he spoke about was already well spread. And even if the way that this specific amendment is phrased wasn't what was put before in that, in that, uh, in that um, uh, is, you know, uh, brief document, whatever I could call it, proposal, that's what I'm looking for. The, our proposal, which was more legalistically phrased, is still in principle with the previous one. And I believe that when you were speaking to your constituents, you would be speaking to them about the principle. You know, not really about, oh, look at the nitty gritties of how this X, Y, and Z is phrased. And so I felt that was just a really inconvenient and uh, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't really like how the council members, most of the council members decided to just not vote on the amendment then because of that reason. And it's sad that the minutes of that council still hasn't been released. <laughs> Everything that happened in 2019's council isn't out there. My report, I think, is actually the only report on council that is out there. Okay, then the vote ended up happening, I think on the 31st of January, um, and it didn't pass. It didn't pass the status A countries, who would have figured, maybe they just weren't interested. It didn't affect them, most of them. Uh, they have very little reason to care about it. Uh, many of them thought it might even disadvantage them, because they thought maybe the reg would go up for them, or I don't know, some other model would be implemented to make uh, to fund this kind of provision. Um, some of the arguments that were made in council, uh, but I can't go into the reasons because those reasons were never given. No one ever said, "This is why we voted no," or "This is why we abstained," or "This is why we didn't vote at all." Um, so uh, because they didn't actually tell us why they didn't vote, they didn't tell us why they ignored it. I, I, I can't I can't respond to their reasons. But what mm -hmm. I can say is they did ignore it. They some some. Some just didn't vote. And if they had voted, it would have passed. So it wasn't even a thing of it had too many no votes. It was just ignored, you know? And yeah. I, it, it, really, it, it really made me mad because we put a lot of work into pushing for this. And they were like, no, we're going to postpone this vote so that we can actually speak to our constituents. They probably never did that, you know? 
that, that excuse was just something to delay the vote uh, so that it, it never came to be. Uh, and uh, I don't know what happened in World Council last year. Uh, I wasn't there. But I, I will say that it would be great to push this amendment in even a stronger version of it again. But it's still not enough. Uh, it's, it's still not enough. The structure needs to be addressed. But um, on World Council reforms, I learned from Patricia Johnston Castle, PJC, that the best way to succeed in creating a, a successful resolution is to lobby for it for a really long time, especially on the Facebook groups. Um, if you look at the success of her uh, uh, country codes amendment, I don't know, I, I understand that we're critical thinkers and we're debaters, but I think a lot of it was postulizing or, you know, pontification to, to create really obscure, odd scenarios and argue that the impact of those scenarios were likely based on theoretical framework within your own mind. It's almost like but this scenario might occur. And I think that the likelihood of this scenario occurring is really high for this reason. Therefore, we should oppose this amendment. Um, it's not empirical. That's the first thing. It's, it's, it's mostly just really the, the idea that, that, that someone has in their mind. And there were lots of doom threads about what would go wrong. And I don't think those things actually came to be. Uh, and I think it is fair for people to make arguments. I'm not saying that they should be quiet. I just felt that a lot of the opposition to the country codes thing was very um, unrealistic in terms of its, its analysis. And um, I think the same happens for a debate about money at Worlds, reducing the costs. I actually looked at it. Um, if, if you look at, I mean, one third of the Korea bids budget went toward the venue because they decided to have the tournament in the same place where Donald Trump met with uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, Jong and I think to myself, it's uh, probably symbolically amazing. It sounds cool, but it's one third of the cost. Maybe if we were not debating there, the tournament wouldn't be as expensive. If you look at the accommodation options, you know, uh, you know, uh, hotels, and, and they said that, okay, but the hotel has reduced their price. It's not the full price of the hotel. I still feel like it's a more expensive option. If you just look at what we're paying for, it's quite clear that a lot of the costs of the tournament, at least from a registration perspective, are there for uh, 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 unnecessary reasons, or maybe not unnecessary to be too condescending, maybe uh, reasons that more privileged debaters can appreciate, but more underprivileged debaters see as massive obstacles. Like, do I, do, I, do I feel like I have to debate in an area where Donald Trump met Kim Jong-un? It's cool, but if I could debate somewhere else and afford the tournament, that would be better for me. Than mm -hmm. that prestige. So again, sorry, sorry for speaking for long. Countering something like that is going to take a lot of lobbying, a lot of Facebook discussions, but I don't have a lot of the energy to even want to try to do that again, because I know that the response from a lot of debaters in that community is going to be those long comments about their theoretical ideas that just you know, pontificate for a long time about why we have to debate in this venue and why we have to use five-star hotels and yeah, and I, I don't think I'm ready for that. I mean, PJC, it's great that she did that for country codes, but uh, someone needs to do that and that someone's not going to be me. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's very fair. I mean, 
insofar as you, you've done the lobbying work already, the proposal is out there and, and we're here talking about it. So I think you're doing part of the work and I don't think we can expect any single person to burden that kind of uh, pressure on them. But I, I, think, I think there's a couple of observations that I find interesting to make that I think you're pointing out quite well. I think one of them indeed being that any change that goes through like an official organ very often has to be a long-term change and especially I think and if you point out there are boundary conditions in worlds that make it incredibly difficult to put that at heart so that much so so we, we could look into that a bit and I'm going to put a pin into that but before that I think a couple of other things I want to highlight that I think it's very good what you pointed out here is firstly how theoretical these concerns are very often indeed. And I think the country code discussion is a very good one of that. I mean, in, in my personal opinion, I don't feel the country codes, have, sorry, teen codes have changed in an enormous amount of things, but broad sale, they are marginally good. And I think comparing that to the level of like apocalypse idea that this would have led to the tournament running until 2 a.m. every night, um, did feel quite overblown in that scenario. And I think probably what's happening here is, is more of a, of a thing that happens that is that you don't like a change or a change not in your interest. And you're just going to grab for reasons that like yeah. hint at your disagreement in there before listening to someone's proposal or hearing them out um, and maybe even testing them for sort of, it's, it's just a different type of Facebook conversation that feels incredibly Invaluable. And I have a feeling that might be the same case for your proposal. So I read Jamie's proposal, the other proposal I was talking about, which I think was much stronger in how mm. far they wanted to do, how many teams they were willing to fund, and how directly they wanted the budget to be done. I think it had a very strong redistributing logic, and I can buy into the logic, but I think it would have been much more polarizing. Whereas your proposal essentially is we can fund three teams and this needs to come from some areas of the budget and then it's up to the host country whether it's come to reg fees from sponsorship however they're going to figure it out uh, and also it's going to be incurred in the price overall so i think one the redistribution logic is still there but it's also similar to all other kinds of redistribution logic like i don't tend to drink as much alcohol as some people do yet sometimes we have free alcohol at large competitions that means that some of my reg free goes towards subsidizing that but i think also b that means that the cost price is like pushed out over a large amount of participants. Like if we are funding three teams, say that costs us a thousand USD per person, that, that's like very generous with quite a large amount of flight expenditure taken on board. If we then also say the fact that like there's 1200 participants at Worlds, that means each of them chips in a dollar per team to get them to come. And I feel like the marginal change rate between me attending Worlds and attending Worlds is not going to be whether reg fee is 400 or whether reg fee is $404 uh, for me, or, or it's gotten up to 500 by now. And I think also the other interesting thing is, and you pointed this out in, in your description of maybe making Joburg tournaments more accessible, allowing for differentiated reg fees based on what people are willing to get in terms of glamour, um, I think is a very interesting notion. So I organized the Dutch World Championship, or at least was part of the organization team. And I think we definitely organized a like slower luxury level worlds as people can attest to having had to sleep with some of the caravans uh, uh, could attest there. And that's obviously in large part because the Netherlands is one of the most expensive countries in the world to try and organize a thing in. But that doesn't need to highlight, as you point out, that Whereas there might be structural costs that are quite high, like there are potentially good reasons to put people into hotels that have a bit more amenities because they tend to be larger and conference hotels. That definitely isn't true for all parts of the budget. And there definitely can be cuts made under some of it and still have create an enjoyable experience. 
Um, and I think that like critically making sure that we examine that, I think all of these are very, very good and bored. But overall, yeah, this I sounds mean, like a very disheartening thing that you had to go through this. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you look at a lot of our debating stories, I went to a tournament in uh, uh, Namibia and uh, getting there required uh, hiking. Some people had to drive down strangers. There was a person who had to go in the back of a van just to get there. We've slept in cars. There are people who have slept on benches outside debate tournaments. We, we've debated in areas where the electricity goes off. Uh, uh, we've, we, we've slept in rooms where there are cockroaches. Um, we've, we've, we've starved for an entire day because there was no food at the tournament. We, if you look at our experiences of debating, we don't even have the opportunity to argue for that luxury, you know? And now I'm listening to people who are saying we don't want to let go of it. It, it just feels to me like that's not even a discussion I want to be in. I mean, we come from a context where that luxury doesn't exist. And I must now convince you with some kind of logic that must counter your pontification that you should let go of it. It just feels to me like I don't want to be, I don't want to be a part of that discussion. And, you know, um, I agree with your previous video. If we can at least, let's address the country status uh, within the World Council. Because part of the reason why we have to lobby so hard is because they have more power than us when it comes to voting. If status A countries effectively make the decisions, and that's true, because it's not enough to just get a super majority. The constitution stipulates that some votes, especially amendments to the constitution itself, require that majority of, uh, of all countries, but also of status A. So you could have 80% of countries support something, uh, non-status A countries support something. If it's not supported by status A countries, it's not gonna pass. So, you know, what the other countries believe doesn't even actually matter because usually they would support it, obviously. If we can address that, that I think, structural, you know, impediment, then we don't have to address the long threads on Facebook groups and convincing people to let go of luxury. If we can just address at its core voting rights, one country, one vote, then we can, we don't have to, yeah, we don't have to, we don't have to do any of that lobbying and convincing people. So I, I think that if there's one thing that we should all be fighting for, we should all be fighting for uh, uh, equal status. I think, I think that's wonderful. I think it ties in with a large amount of the theme of the conversation that we say about equal, but also making sure that that's with respect and that we take into account different viewpoints, perspective and context and operate from local context and allow them to have an equal and fair hearing. Um, thank you very much for all of you at it. Um, if there's one more thing that you'd want to add into the conversation, is there something that you feel we have to mention before we close it? Yeah, I, I just think we need to have hope as well. I mean, we've been speaking a lot of negatives, a lot about the structures of global debating. And I think we're just being realistic about all the obstacles that exist. Um, but I, I think that we can address the structure. I mean, I wouldn't be doing all the work I'm doing if I didn't believe that we can one day have a world, but also just a debating community that's fairer, that's more equal. I do think we can do that. So I, I just say to everyone, you know, have hope and keep fighting. Yeah. Thank you very much, Yamo. Thank you for like coming in and for giving us all of your fantastic insights.